He's a producer of Alter Boys, Speed the Plow, Blythe Spirit, and the upcoming Oleana. He created the awesome 80s prom in My First Time. He started the social networking site broadwayspace.com. And in his spare time, he's a provocative blogger on all matters theatrical. And I'm sure I've missed plenty of things. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and we're joined today by the man who does all of that and more, Ken Davenport. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. There are so many directions we can go in here that I think I want to start with the basics. Where did your love of theater, which is apparent, come from? My parents, actually, I think where a lot of things come from, uh, they they got me started in the theater. They dragged me to my first audition when I was five years old for the Steadfast Tin Soldier at the local community theater. Now, ironically, my parents were also divorced when I was five. And I I still to this day believe that they dragged me to the theater because it was neutral territory for them, frankly, that it was something that they were both involved in. And they said, well, we'll get him involved. And uh, they say, no, no, it had nothing to do with it. But I, I swear it is. And uh, that, to me, is sort of a symbol of what the theater is. Where and all this is up of, in Massachusetts? This is in a very small town in Massachusetts called Sturbridge, famous for old Sturbridge Village where you know people – dress up like, you know, in the 1800s and walk around. It's a miniature version of uh, things in Williamsburg. Exactly. Yeah. There's the person playing the farmer and the candle maker and, you know, I, I'm the blacksmith and that sort of thing. A uh, very small historic town. So, But I, I interrupted. You were saying so it was neutral ground for your parents was, to drive you, know, you to the theater. This local theater was neutral territory for them. And so they got me involved when I was five. And I did show after show after show until I uh, turned about 13 years old, got way too cool for it because I was going to be a big jock. I uh, ended up uh, playing sports throughout high school and then got bit by the bl- bug uh, my junior year of high school. I'm part of what I call the Les Mis generation, uh, where a group of people that were really th- – the idea of what theater could do was changed by that show. Here came a musical that was – well, one, was longer than anything we had seen before, but deeper. It seemed more profound for some reason. You know, my generation sort of missed the showboats and the Oklahomas. We were – Annie was like the biggest thing that I knew that could have an effect on an audience. Uh, so here come here came Les Mis, and it was it, the the music. While even it's a classic story, is written in somewhat of a pop vernacular. You know, on my own sounds like a pop tune if you really look at it. Uh, so I was really overwhelmed by what that could do, and got very interested in what was happening in the theater again. And I quit my basketball team uh, and did the high school musical. I was Billy Crocker and Anything Goes. And it all really changed then as I got back into it. I was already accepted and had agreed or we had paid the deposit anyway to go to Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. I was going to be a lawyer like practically everyone else in my class at that time. And I uh, got to Hopkins and on my third day I had my meeting with my advisor and she came and said, oh, what, what do you want to take? We should uh, start picking your major. You haven't picked yet. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm going to transfer. And she said, you just got here. And I said, I know I'm going to go to New York and pursue theater. She said – all right, well, let's pick all easy classes for you then. And um, that was it. I spent more time doing theater in Baltimore than I did actually going to class. Uh, and I transferred for my sophomore year and went to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. For acting? Yeah, I was going to be an acting major. I was an acting major. I was going to be a performer. You know, like so many people in the business, that is what we, you know, most likely what we were exposed to first, the idea of being thrown on a stage or being involved. You know, there. I spent a lot of my, you know, post-college career as a company manager. Well, I can tell you when you're a kid, you know, you don't know what a company manager does. Uh, so it's not until later when you're expo- until you're exposed to it. So no, I, I remember saying to myself, 
when I was applying and thinking about uh, changing schools, where should I go? Should I go to Northwestern? Should I think about Carnegie Mellon? And I said, you know, I'm going to New York and I'm going to NYU because I will meet someone there that will segue me to the, to the business, that I will have a professor or somebody I'll meet that's already working in the biz that will sort of hold my hand and take me with them. And that is exactly what happened. My junior year, I met Jack Lee, uh, an esteemed music director, and he was working on My Fair Lady with Richard Chamberlain. And for some reason, I still don't know why, he called me over Christmas break and said, I want to recommend you for a production assistant position on My Fair Lady. And I said yes without even knowing what that meant. Uh, he said, well, you just graduated, right? I said, no, I've got another year and a half. He said, oh, I don't know if you can do this. I said, I'll figure it out. I want to do this. I don't know what it is, but I want to do it. I so wanted to be a part of the big Broadway machine. And um, I ended up uh, – he said, well, call this guy. I must have left 142 messages on this guy's machine who's still a friend and a mentor now uh, and bugged him for a month until uh, finally, finally he said, all right. Well, he, he called me back and he said, OK, you got this gig. But where in there – I mean you, you seem to just suddenly leap from you're in the acting program but you simply saw that as an entree to – more a production side of things? You know, while I was at NYU, I got some great advice, and someone said, um, one, follow the road wherever it takes you. At your age, they said, you're in college. You can change your mind 142 times, and I know you all think you're going to be performers, but you may not want to be performers. Just be open to things and learning, and think about it like you're five years old, not you know 18 years old or 20 years old. Just sort of look at what the world has to offer around you and follow things. You know, that's what's amazing about a five-year-old kid. They see a bright light. They'll like walk down the street towards it or something shiny or a person. And they said, think like that. And I did. Someone said, I want to offer you a part to be in a, uh, a part of a Broadway experience. I just said yes. And uh, it opened my eyes to a whole new world that I didn't know existed. All of a sudden, I was meeting producers. Uh, Barry Weisler, Barry and Fran Weisler produced that show. And hearing them talk, and then designers, and I find it. I certainly found out I certainly didn't want to be a you know costume design assistant. Uh, you know, my mom always tells me as I was coming. She said, "You know, you find out what you want to do, uh, or the more you do, you find out what you don't want to do, uh, and you just cross it off your list. It's like taking the SAT, you know, process of elimination until you get the right one." And so I saw all these things, and I saw a company manager, and I said, "Well, that's very interesting to me." So I was a production assistant on that show and then that this business every you know it's one leads to another every job i had for the first five years of my career i could trace back to that very first one someone that knew me recommended me to someone else and it was a chain what interested you about company management it was a perfect merger of my talents actually i was uh Obviously, I was creative in terms of I wanted to be a performer. I knew about the theater. I loved it. But at the same time, you know, I was the kid that used to go hang out at the Radio Shack and play on the TRS-80 computers when their parents would say, go run around the mall for an hour. So I had this administrative background and this very, you know, I have a very logical and rational type A mind, uh, which frankly I think was one of the reasons that I recognized early while I would have been a fine performer and I did it for a while and was actually working. I never would have been as big as I wanted to be because of some of the other things that uh, I had as just a makeup of my personality. 
Now, frankly, rather than get depressed about that, I tried to figure out how I could use that to do something else and more exciting. Uh, I had big dreams and big ambitions. And frankly, when I looked at myself, I said, I think I can accomplish much more on the other side of the table than I can in front of the footlights. So what did you learn in the period that you were company managing and you were associate company manager and then company manager on shows certainly that people would be familiar with the Hal Prince revivals of Showboat and Candide, uh, the original production of Ragtime, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and uh, the Bernadette Peters Gypsy? Yes. Okay. So what did you learn as a company manager in that period? Well, the one thing that I can tell you I learned – that helps me every day as a producer is I really learned how the internal machinery of a Broadway musical functions. Uh, you're as a company manager, you're right there on the inside. You are dealing with the agents for the actors. You're dealing with the unions. You're dealing with the producers. You're dealing with the ushers of the theater. You're dealing with everyone. So you really see how those shows come together, and you're part of that process. You're negotiating. You're running financials and budgets, etc. So. I learned a lot about what it took to make a musical or a play work. And frankly, more often than not, because we all know what the success rate is in this business, I learned what it took to not make a show work. And some of the things and mistakes that I thought were made or where things were wrong. Or, and frankly, I don't even mean specifically from certain people or choices. I mean just overall, where our industry has flaws and issues, which is, of course, what I blog about all the time. Uh, so it – as a company manager for 10 years, I was really able to see this is a repeated problem from show to show. Every Everyone runs into this problem. What would I do if I were the captain of this ship? And I think about that every day and that experience uh, has been tremendously valuable. Did you have the opportunity in that period to voice some of your thoughts about how to fix things to the people you were working for? To some extent. I mean, obviously, that's a question. When you develop the you know respect from certain people, absolutely, they want to hear your opinion. But I will tell you that one of the hardest things I've had to learn as someone coming up, you know, uh, is that there there is a place for that and there is not a place for that. And one of the things that I learned was when to leave a position before I started uh, being too vocal, frankly. Hmm. Uh, it was as an associate company manager. I'll never forget the day that I wanted to say more. And I remember thinking to myself, this isn't the place. I have two choices. Stay here. Get extremely frustrated and bitter that I'm not allowed to be a part of this. And frankly, I had some of the best bosses in the world and they would have listened to me. But it just wasn't my position. Or go out, step up, do your own thing where you can have more of a voice. So there's three or four moments in my career when I did exactly that. I was like, this has been great. And now in order to keep all these relationships intact, frankly, uh, it's time for me to go on and, and do something else. So instead of somebody telling you to shut up and leave, you said to yourself, shut up and <laughs> yeah, move on. This isn't your place, Ken. I, I, you know, and this is a very small business. And these people were very smart and very well respected and all that. And I, I said, it's not whether I agreed or disagreed. Sometimes you just need to say, hey, the way you're thinking right now, you want to do this on your own. Uh, so I said, I'm just going to do this on my own. So what was the first on your own? Well, throughout this period, I was looking for shows to do. And, uh, you know, I, I had optioned a performance art piece at one point, like a Blue Man Group type thing. I had written this horrific, 
terrific review about uh, centered around television theme songs called Primetime. If any of the 50 people that were out there uh, out there listening were at that reading, I'm sorry. Uh, I, so I'd done a number of things, went after a bunch of books, and frankly uh, – most of the doors got slammed in my face. I wasn't, you know, given the rights to things that I wanted, et cetera. And then two of the projects that I had been working on after a very, very important meeting I had with Hal Prince, uh, which I'll tell you about. You know, I worked with him three times. I uh, was the associate on Sh- uh, Showboat and Candide, and I company managed one of the first parade workshops. And he wrote this very famous article about how there were no more creative producers anymore. It's a topic he talks about often. And uh, I'm so glad he does because – and when I read it, I remember thinking like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. So I grabbed him one day and I said, I would love – this is what I want to do, Hal. And he said, you know, come to my office as he often does and is so – so um, uh, he gives so much of his time to people like me. And I said, I want to do this. And he said, well, let's talk about what it means and what do you want to do and – he said, what are you working on? You know, producers produce. What is, so I must have pitched him everything under the sun that I was on. Every big idea I'd ever, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that I think everyone who's ever thought about producing theater has wanted to do, uh, to a small book that I wanted to option called Mole People by a Columbia grad student about the people that lived underground in the subway tunnels. Uh, all this stuff. And he stopped me about halfway through and said, Ken, do you remember the sh- first show I ever produced? And I said, No. He said it was the pajama game. Don't come out of the box trying to produce West Side Story. That was my third show. Be happy if you get the pajama game. It ran for a while, made a lot of people some uh, very happy, made them some money, and it was a start. It got me going. And then I did another one. And then the big one was third. Like, And frankly, I think if, if you even talked about how what his major contribution to the theater, something would tell me it wouldn't even be West Side. You know, he would get into the Merrilies, you know, and the stuff later on Follies and that sort of stuff. And it really opened my eyes that day to what I had been doing over the past several years, which was asking other people for the permission to create theater, rights, et cetera, and been told no. And I had had an idea for this, uh, this interactive show. Um, you know, Tony and Tina's wedding was tremendously successful. And I knew it was successful because it was getting ripped off everywhere. So I said the commercial-minded person in me said the, – the producer said there's got – audiences obviously want this type of entertainment. Maybe I could come up with something like that. And I immediately – I started looking at – there was one about a wedding. There was one about a funeral. There was one about a bar mitzvah. There were all these. And I said, well, it's a milestone event in people's lives. What, what's another one? I said the prom. I said, OK, we'll do the prom. Uh, and then I said – and I'll set it – you know, I grew up on John Hughes. You know, we'll have a moment of silence for him. Uh, and in front of watching those movies, and I said, I know the 80s were – and those movies and those high school characters are iconic. We'll set mine in the 80s. And then I thought, I, you know, reality TV just started to hit. And I said, well, I'll have my audience vote for King and Queen. And all these elements started to come together. And frankly, I put that idea to the side because it didn't feel important enough to me. You know, as a as a young guy, and frankly, I do think this is more of a male thing because of our young male egos. We're out there. We want to change the world and we can do really important artistic stuff. And uh, the thought of doing, which my version of the pajama game, frankly, the awesome 80s prom, an interactive show, like just didn't seem like the type of theater I wanted to be known for. And after – it's such bull. And then I – you know, how really – 
checked my ego and said, do you want to pro- – you know, what do you want to do? You want to produce theater? Produce something. Just do something. I went home that day and started working on the Awesome 80s Prom. That was first. And uh, it rolled out first. It's still running. It's um, one of my – will be one of my most favorite productions because it was my first. <laughs> and your role on that, you conceived it and you directed it? I did. And were so when it says conceive, were you also – a writer? How is it? A lot of improv. I mean, explain how it came together then creatively. Well, I had this idea, uh, and I am like a lot of people that do what I do: obsessive compulsive and type A and all those things. So, I have this thing about at the end of the day, I can't, uh, I can't have anything on my desk. I like to have it all cleaned off and ready to go. Right? I'm that OCD, and. I remember thinking, I have this idea. I know sort of what I want. I want them to introduce themselves and say who they are. And then I want this a couple of skit ideas. And we'll vote and we'll win prom king and queen. But I couldn't fill out the rest of it, frankly. I said, well, I need some help. What should I do? And I said, well, I should go out there and try and cast a group of writers, improvisers, people that knew this world that, frankly, again, had some of the skills that I don't have. Uh, So... And along the OCD line, what I did was I had an audition. I didn't know what the show was going to be. Uh, the audition was originally for something like untitled improv project because I was so afraid that someone would steal it. So I uh, got a group of people together. We uh, I cast sort of some roles, some types. And I – you know, it's so funny. I'm known now for this. This is an improvisational show. I had very little improvisational training. Hmm. I remember reading a book like a couple weeks before I started rehearsals. And we met once a week for about three months. And we talked about the 80s and we talked about prom and all those movies. And the show was written uh, in that rehearsal room at Ripley Greer. Just like Chorus Line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only time the Chorus Line and the Awesome 80s prom will ever be mentioned in the same sentence. But I'll take it. <laughs> um, so that got off the ground. That got off the ground, yeah. I uh, And, you know, I was also – well, let me ask you. It got off the ground, but you needed money too. <laughs> we, we, we haven't brought that up. We've talked, you know, the background. So, so where'd you go for money for your first project? Well, this is another benefit of, frankly, being in the circles that I had been in from uh, as a company manager. First of all, I t- you know, one of the biggest questions I get on my blog or from young producers is like, how can I ever raise money for my show? And uh, I tell people that raising money is a lot like when you were a kid and sold uh, chocolate bars if you were a Cub Scout or a Girl Scout cookies or whatever it was. You start with your family, your friends, and like a marker on a piece of paper, hopefully it bleeds out from there. When you're getting started and even when you're a success, people invest in people more than they invest in projects. So I had done a lot of networking, of course, and met a lot of people and – I went to them, frankly. In fact, one of my first investors on another show uh, before that even, that actually never even happened. I never even had to take his check. But he – I was pitching him the investment and he said – he stopped me just like Hal did, which is I love. They sort of <laughs> – I overtalk. And uh, he said, I'm going to write you this check for $25,000. And I was like, you are great. <laughs> and he said, but I have to tell you, I don't think the show is going to work. I was like, then why are you giving me this money? And he said exactly what I just said. He said, because I invest in people, not projects. And I believe in you. And I believe that maybe this one won't work, but something you do will. And I want you to keep going and keep going. Uh, and 
that's frankly the people that gave me my, my first start with the Awesome 80s Prom. And then you followed that up with Alter Boys? Was that the next up? Yeah, Alter Boys was actually had been in development for a couple of years. Another idea of mine that I had gotten some friends together and said, let's write a musical, and we morphed it uh, over a four-year period. It was a difficult development process. You know, Alter Boys, right now, you go to see it, it looks like the simplest musical ever. It's you know very easy, simple plot, et cetera, but it, the easy ones are – the ones that look easier, frankly, are the hardest to pull together. What was so difficult? The actually just coming up with the reason. There's no onstage antagonist in Alter Boys. It's five guys. They never leave the stage. So what is the reason they're in front of you? You know, and we looked at. I'm from the Forever Plaid world, so we were looking at all those things and to try and come up with that. Uh, we went through so many <laughs> things. At one point, there was a uh, antagonist. There was a a manager named uh, Deville. Uh, there was. Oh, there were all sort of Luke, who now, if you've seen the show, is uh, exhausted. He has an issue with communion wine. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, he had an issue with bubblegum. Uh, there was another draft where we went the opposite direction. And he was addicted to Vicodin. I mean, it went like you wouldn't believe the drafts that were created. And uh, finally, we when we signed on Kevin DeLaguila, who ended up doing the the book for us, uh, we. Things really sort of gelled in the last year. So it had been simmering on the stove and we – it was Kevin's spec script to us that we submitted to the New York Musical Theater Festival. And um, rumor has it that we were passed over on the first time. But thanks to some healthy lobbying from the inside from some fans, they got it through. Uh, and then they opened at the festival and it was just – Awesome 80s Prom and Alter Boys were opening like – at the exact same time. Oh. One was at the festival and one was just launching its off-Broadway run. Hmm. Alter Boys uh, has had a terrific run, continues, but it's fairly well known that it took a long time to recoup. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little about what was going on business-wise in terms of sustaining a show that certainly was not you know we often see press releases six months nine months a year into the run of a show and everybody makes hay it 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 sounds like it was a long haul extremely long haul and still is it doesn't stop you know alter boys was and is a success with a small s that's how i think about it because yes at the beginning of the word yeah Uh, it's yeah uh it's what you know, everyone does point to it, and I am so proud of it. And it is a success because it is the first show to recoup traditional off-Broadway musical to recoup its investment in 13 years. I love your Perfect Now change. We think is the last one. There are rumors that Hedwig did, but we're not quite sure. So if anyone's out there that knows, let us know. But when we think it may have been tipped by the movie, frankly, and not during its run. Mm-hmm. We don't know of any other eight show a week, you know, musical comedy that has recouped its investment. I've seen fifty shows, I think, come and go in the time that we've been at New World Stages. It was a very, very long haul, uh, and every day I was just—I no one could see me right now. I'm wearing a suit because I was speaking to some union representatives today about the troubles of off Broadway and and how we need to really take a look at it. And I'm talking to everyone. You know, one of the big problems facing off Broadway is that. You know, Broadway had a big boom in the last 10 to 20 years. Off-Broadway became mini-Broadway. And we started to think that, oh, we can just you know, shrink 
just reduce the the budgets by X percent, but keep all the fat. Uh, and frankly, we can't. There are a lot of deal structures and positions that just don't exist, aren't possible to exist within the current off-Broadway economic model. Uh, we've, over the years, have trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed in order to keep it going for four and a half years to make sure my, my investors did get their money back. Well, the story goes now that when people look and think about a small show, they they look at off-Broadway and they run the numbers and say, oh, if it's going to cost us a million or a million and a half to be off-Broadway – we might as well raise another million and just be on Broadway with all of the extra attention that that brings because of that perception and divide. Is that do you, do you think that holds true? To some extent, absolutely. I tell people now that you go off Broadway when you have something so unique that it can't work anywhere else. Uh, you know, we Alter Boys was off Broadway when Avenue Q was making their big move which I believe is what started the revolution of don't think about, you know, why not bump up instead of bumping down. Uh, And obviously it's been very successful for a number of shows. But there are a lot of people in the business who thought this is crazy. This show can't get bigger. The puppets won't be seen, all of that. So – and they managed to make that work, obviously, and other shows have followed. And some, it has worked for some, but it has not worked for others. Uh, it's true. It's you know the financing to create an off-Broadway show uh, and sustain it is exceptionally difficult. You know, we've had to make, and not only us, but our partners, et cetera. I mean, we we wouldn't be there, but for the grace of New World Stages and their commitment to off-Broadway. Uh, Beverly McKean, who's a real leader in the industry, has really looked to find innovative solutions to this problem and and frankly try and convince people to stay off Broadway uh, which is getting harder and harder I do believe off Broadway you know my first time for example and off we look we were faced with uh, should maybe we should uh, you know Kevin McCollum still jokes to me every time I see him he's like I still think we should have moved Alter Boys to Broadway and uh, my counter has always been that we wouldn't have been nominated for best musical that year uh, it was uh, Spamalot and uh, Light at the Piazza and Scoundrels and Spelling Bee? Yes. And um, so I, I still think we would have been lost. But for me, Alter Boys, it was an off-Broadway musical. It's an off-Broadway story. It wouldn't make any sense if the boys were playing the palace. It just wouldn't – it felt off-Broadway to me. And we said this is a, about a small, struggling band. And those are the sort of things. You have to look at the material in the show. I relate it to the Magnolia Bakery. The Magnolia Bakery is, you know, one of the most unique little bakeries uh, probably in the country. And I still get lost every time I try to find it. But it is so unique and the experience is unique that I will go out of my way to try and find it in the Lower West Side. Yet – They've franchised. And, of course, Alter Boys has been done in numerous productions. How – have you found it's played differently in different places? Yeah, we've – I've seen it – I saw it in Korea. Uh, First, that was the first additional production, which was – you know, I'll tell you, it is quite a trip to see a show that was born in your living room being (laughs) being performed – halfway around the world in another language and to see a culture, frankly, go crazy for it, just like they do here. Even more so, it's a younger audience there. Uh, the Korean, the younger uh, Korean population 
really turns out for the theater. They also put some stars in it. So they had this Korean boy band star leading the group. So it was, I mean, the screams from the audience was just phenomenal. So, yeah, I've seen it, uh, you know, over there as well as over here. It's been in Finland and Hungary and um, all over the country. And that has helped. That's we. That was a specific part of our marketing strategy. You know, a lot of big Broadway shows will not release their rights until the Broadway show is closed or the tour has played out, et cetera. We specifically said we'll never be able to afford the type of media that all these other uh, companies could provide for us. And more importantly, we all know that the number one thing that sells theater tickets is word of mouth. I knew if I licensed the show earlier that I would create a ton of people that had seen the show and that loved the show. And no matter how good of a marketer anyone claims to be, there is no person that knows how to describe a show to their friend than you know that person. A description that I create or my advertising agency creates is nowhere near as powerful as you telling your friend, I went to see this show and here's what it's about. So I knew if we released the rights early, we could create that. Did you actually release it around the U.S. early as well? Because you've been talking about international productions. No, we did release it uh, early. You know, Rodgers mm-hmm. and Hammerstein, which uh, controls the rights for us, and they came to us and said, listen, we, we think this is a good idea. Uh, and we agreed. We mm-hmm. said, let's get it out there. Let's get it out there because this was a show that had a marketing challenge to it and I needed other people out there in, wor- in the world to spread the buzz about it. Mm-hmm. And it has helped the New York production without a doubt. As we're talking about your creative side, the next project would be My First Time, which you started to mention a minute ago and then veered off. Yeah. So, so tell, tell us how that came to be. My First Time was another idea that came out. You know, I have this split brain. I think I have this commercial theater producer's side, which I have to figure out a show and an idea that people will want to invest in and that the Broadway audience wants to see. You know, I tell people this all the time. I've had to turn down some very good scripts and say, I can't be part of this. I can't be part of this. And it's not because I'm this, you know, grisly old commercial theater producer. I I am a commercial theater producer. And that means that I have to create a show that speaks to a very specific group of people. Broadway is a very thin slice of real estate in the center of the theatrical world. And it's habitated by a certain group of people that was certain tastes and certain expectations. So you have to come up with shows that appeals to those group, to that group. So my first time, you know, I had seen the success of the vagina monologues and and I'd also seen the vagina monologues and actually felt very uncomfortable there. And I remember thinking, well, is there something else like this that is a topic we don't talk about, but that a lot of people have in common and that is something that people maybe would be interested in hearing about? And first sexual experiences sort of popped into my mind like that. And I was going to do the Eve approach, but frankly, she has much more patience than I do. Uh, so I was, I said, I'll do what everyone else is doing at the time. I'll create a website where people can anonymously tell their stories and I'll adapt it. I went to register the domain name myfirsttime.com and found that it had been taking, taken by two guys that were doing exactly what I wanted to do. Hmm. Uh, they had all these stories, over 40,000 of them. Yeah. Which actually said I was on the right track, that people wanted this information. And, I mean, were they all posted? I'm, yeah. Wow. So I combed through a lot of them, a lot of late night reading, and I optioned the rights and to And how them. many of them sounded like letters to Penthouse? Well, that's a very good question. Many did. A lot were, you know, the site in its later years had been hijacked by some teens, practically, you know, like making stuff up. But the more I dug, 
I would find you know the good stuff. It was like panning for gold without a doubt, but there was definitely enough gold in there to make a show from. And I optioned the rights to the website and crafted over the next year and a half my first time, which is true stories about people's first sexual experiences, monologues, one-liners, scenes, etc. Four actors, two men, two women. And that show, you know, I we used to give interviews at the very beginning when people would ask me about the show and why I was doing it. I said, you know, first sexual experiences are one of the few things that almost every single person on this planet has in common. It doesn't matter where you live or what you do for a living, how much money you make. You can be living in a cave in Zimbabwe or an Upper East Side penthouse or doesn't matter where, or an igloo. Most likely you're going to have sex for the first time. And everyone wants to know what goes on behind closed doors. And that's what my first time does. And now that show has been performed not only here in New York, in Korea, back to Korea, uh, Italy, France, Spain. I'm going to Finland in two weeks, Israel, Chile, Argentina, and a slew of other countries are coming. With the wealth of material that you had to draw from, and I don't know if that website that those guys created still operates – is there a temptation to swap out stories to keep the show fresh? And, and how do you manage to do that if you're doing it? Yeah, there is always what I call the plug-and-play potential to pull out a, a story and put one back in. We haven't done it yet because the stories right now do fit the overall arc of the evening. But what we did do, frankly, just a few weeks ago is we added um, some bonus material at the end of the show. We called it the XXX Files. Because what we, when I created the show, I didn't want it to be a sex show. I really did want it, to, want it to be a study about this experience that no one talks about and that sucked for most people. Um, and that if we shared it, we talked about it, laughed about it, maybe we could all get over it, frankly. So there, were, there weren't a lot of the racier stories. And then we found that a couple of people really wanted them, including this group of old ladies, one of the first audiences they ever had. I know <laughs> I was doing my, an impromptu focus group. I saw them and they were a very interesting audience to me for the show. And I said, ladies, what did you think? How would you hear about it? A reporter from the New York Times was there actually. And uh, he was asking some, them some questions. And they said, we wanted it to be racier. So just for those little old ladies, in July after every show, we let the audience choose between four stories. And we read a new story that I pulled off from the website that was uh, definitely racier with a capital R. <laughs> dirty, dirty stuff. Now, it's interesting because we've been talking about the shows you've created. In the last year, you've had your name above the title, as they mm-hmm. all say, on four Broadway shows in one season. These were not projects you initiated yourself. Why did you become involved in that way in those Broadway shows? That's a great question, and there are a number of answers to it. One, Broadway is where I began my career, and I always knew I would go back there. Uh, I had these three off-Broadway ideas. I wanted to create them, develop them, produce them. I also started off-Broadway, frankly, because I knew I couldn't write these multi-million-dollar checks. I wanted to you know, do what most small business people do, is start small and work myself up. I didn't want to be you – know, when I started, I didn't want to be – you know labored by having to raise huge amounts of money and spend all my time doing that. I wanted to create some shows and develop them and learn and be a part of them. And, you know, despite my 10 years learning as a company manager, 
I never learned more than I did when I was in my apartment trying to get the Awesome 80s prom off the ground with no staff and me answering the group sales line and developing a marketing campaign and no one to delegate things to. So that's why I did Off-Broadway, all the while knowing I would be getting back to Broadway. So I decided, you know, for a number of reasons. One, my investors were eager to look at it. Two, I have a bunch of ideas of shows that I do want to take the lead on, some that I'm going to creatively develop, others that I'm not. And I wanted to get back in and at the table. In a way, I wanted to uh, sort of do what I did as a company manager. Frankly, someone asked me to be a part of a project. And just like I said yes when I was a student to someone asking me to PA, I said, I'll do it. Because it was an idea I liked. It was something I believed in. Uh, something that I thought I could be a part of and have an impact and help. And I wanted to be back at the table now from a different perspective. I had been there as a company manager, and I said, this will be a great year for me. These are great projects, and then I'll build on this and move forward. Did you find that your perception once you were at the table was different than what you'd perceived (laughs) when you were lower on the totem pole? Yeah, but the great thing – about being a company manager first is I knew what they were saying about us when we left the room. You know, uh, There's a group of producers at these tables now. Now, I knew the conversations that general managers and company managers were having. I knew everything that the ad agencies were saying. I knew the decisions that were made before we would get in the room and et cetera, et cetera. So I came in with that knowledge, which was great uh, and very helpful. But, of course, I learned a tremendous amount. I also wanted to see how other producers worked. Uh, I was very lucky and was able to work with great people, Bob Boyette on 13, uh, Jeffrey Richards, both fantastic producers with exact opposite styles. And I remember when I was at NYU and um, I had an acting teacher. I had two acting teachers at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And one of them was a fascist about the method. I mean – she was all, like, this is the way. It's Lee's way or that's it. I would tell her I would do something in a scene and she would say, you can't do it that way. You have to feel the coffee cup and all the stuff. And then we had another acting teacher and I did the same scene for them. And he said, what did you do? And I told him I did something different. He said, that's fine. I was like, what do you mean? He said, you know what the method is? The method is creating your own, finding out what works for you. But the best thing to do is learn about all of them. And then create your own using pieces from each one. So by sitting at that table and being exposed to, you know, and and learning from Bob and Jeffrey and all these other people, I was able to start to create more of my own method. I've been doing that on my own for a number of years, but I don't think you ever stop. I want to be 75 years old and learning from the person uh, uh, across the table from me. Let's segue because at the same time that you're doing, and I don't know when you began – You are an avid blogger and social networker, and when did you start the blogging? It has been a year and a half. Okay. So at the time that you're really moving on to Broadway, you're also very actively, very publicly, offering your opinions on everything that's going on, (laughs) on Broadway, off-Broadway, etc., Going back to the story about, you know, you do in your early jobs when you shouldn't say things. How do you balance being a producer with someone who is 
often writing about what producers should or shouldn't be doing or marketers or anyone? That's a very good question and I can tell you that I do feel at times like I'm walking a balance beam uh, on the blog, which is hard because that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. When you're blogging, you know, Perez Hilton is popular because he says exactly what's on his mind. Howard Stern, these are the people. But frankly, that was never my goal to be Perez Hilton or Howard Stern or or someone just getting lots of listeners because I was saying the most extremely provocative or things just for attention. I one I started the the blog because one I like to talk as you probably already realized and frankly I, one of my first blogs is like you know my staff goes home at six as they should and uh, well actually they go home later than that but I'm usually in my office still eleven o'clock or midnight and I would have an idea or a thought and there'd be no one there to listen to me so I found like I had to purge it so the blog was purging for me uh, at the same time. Every time I would speak on a panel, I would I would get questions about producing and what it was. And it seemed like we were a bit like the Wizard of Oz. And I still think this is a, one of the big problems our industry faces. And there's a contempt between union producer, this adversarial relationship, even between actor and producer at times. It really harkens back to these old days where these producers, frankly, weren't were not the most honest of folks uh, and took advantage of a lot of people. And the industry has advanced a lot since then. And I, I actually don't think there are a lot of people like there used to be. But some reason, because of all the things that have happened in the past, and I'm talking years and years ago now, 50 and more, uh, we can't get over that. We can't sort of heal some of those wounds, which have caused some of the big, big problems in our industry. Uh and I think we need to. And I thought, well, maybe if we open the curtain a little bit and see what we actually go through, what we do, and also to start, you know, I love theater. And the more you talk about it, if I talk about it online, then other people, and the conversation gets amplified. The more people talking about it, the more people talking about producing, hopefully will inspire more people to want to produce. And I think, like Hal says, we need more creative producers. So I thought hopefully we'll this dialogue will get louder and louder. More people will want to do it. And then more theater will be created. What's the feedback that you get from professionals in the industry? I mean, there may be plenty of people out there who read you who are curious about the industry. But but when you offer up a strong opinion, <laughs> um, has, has that ever proven awkward? That's a good question. I'm trying to think if it's ever been awkward. No, I don't think so. I think the... Well, let me give you – let me yeah. you say I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you've made some statements about um, the way – the relationship between the advertising agencies and the shows, that we have but a handful of agencies. And, and you've expressed uh, concern about the concentration of, of that particular element of Broadway. I would think that the people who – the folks who run those few agencies mm-hmm. – would have something to say about it, and you probably end up in a room with them uh, it's, it's, once a week on each of those four shows. <laughs> it's true. It does happen. One, this is a very small business. It's a community. One of the reasons why I love it is because it reminds me of my high school that was had 36 people in my high school graduating class. Uh, I love that community spirit. Uh, I'm a big believer that, that change is good for everyone and, and that these kind of conversations and, and all discussing them, even in that room, are good. I do it to start a conversation. 
I wrote a blog about health insurance uh, and I got a couple calls about it. And people said, are you worried that you got a call from this person or this person? And I said, no, that was the point because guess what? We just started a conversation. I don't know where that conversation is going to go, but it wasn't happening two days ago. So now it's good because, frankly, a lot of the things, you know, we get stuck in the mud in this industry and others because, frankly, no one just wants to talk about it. So, yeah, it, it certainly is tough when you say things like that. But I think deep down a lot of people know. A lot of the, I'm not saying anything that, that a lot of people don't know already. Uh, yes, I am saying it. Often this is the response I get. Ken, I read your blog. It's good. I don't necessarily agree with everything you say, <laughs> but I like it. Keep it up. Uh, hmm. So, and even with the people that I've, you know, had to sort of poke a little bit here and there, it's all been positive feedback. Because I usually am also, at some point down the line, they're also probably getting a credit from me. That's the, you know, I, uh, the advertising agency specifically was actually the working in theater seminar. I mean, you had, you had Drew and Nancy and Damon and those folks. Those guys are the best in the biz at what they do. The best. So it goes both ways at times. Usually everything comes around. Hmm. Beyond the blog, you've become a strong proponent of social networking. And whether it's the utilization of Twitter, which has just exploded nationally in the past. I just read a report saying that almost 75% of Twitter's growth has come came in the first five months of this year. Um, and you've also created your own uh, your own chat conversation area, the BroadwaySpace.com, which had, when I looked at it the other day, something over fifteen thousand participants. Um, what what's the drive for that, and what do you think those are achieving? Well, you'll sense a trend in me. One, the the goal of that is, frankly, audience development to amplify the conversation. Uh, about theater and about Broadway. When, you know, social networks, I say, are like um, uh, online nightclubs or online coffee houses. You're collecting people in a room with actually very passionate people in a room um, with similar interests. And they talk. And if those people now found more people just like them and talk about Broadway now five times a day instead of once a day, that's good for Broadway. Uh, I was one of those kids. I write about this in the about section of Broadway Space. I used to drive my, you know, car into school every day, listening to Les Mis blasted. You know, I'd pull into the parking lot and I'd swap it out for the latest MC Hammer tune. You know, like I it was I was Broadway wasn't cool, and I remember thinking, "There's got to be MC this- Hammer." Depending on the circles you well, were you in, remember, we're not yeah. necessarily cool. I created either. the awesome '80s prom, so you have to remember <laughs> that uh, my Where 80s your taste taste run. Exactly. Okay, okay, but on the cheese side. So uh, I knew there had to be other people just like me out there. But this was 1988, 89. I couldn't find them. Uh, I looked for them in the 90s on these, you know, bulletin board news groups. uh, That was the beginning of the internet. And then now you can easily connect these people. And the great thing about Broadway Space, there's 15,000 people from all over the world. Half of them see like eight shows a year. A whole bunch of them haven't ever seen a Broadway show before. And now they're able to educate. And again, the conversation gets louder and louder. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, we have a very hard time communicating with our audience here. Theater uh, is very much like the publishing industry or even movies. 
you don't sell your product directly to your consumer. It goes through a third-party ticketing agent. Going through Telecharger, Ticketmaster, or you know, books go through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. So we never know who our customers really are. Well, this was a way for me to find out exactly who they are. And at the same time, as you can imagine, Broadway Space, as with all social networks, they all start younger. You know, MySpace was young until the the older folks jumped on. Then the younger kids jumped over to Facebook. Now on Facebook, the average age is much older. And Broadway Space, same thing, starting young and going older. That's audience development. These kids in their 20s, if I can get them talking and pa- more passion about theater, hopefully they'll be going more when they're 30 and 40. I have to ask you, you spoke earlier about the challenges of off-Broadway. If you're trying to raise the conversation level about theater, why is it Broadway space? Why isn't it theater space? Broadway is a bigger brand, frankly, and you have to use, you know, it's more honey to draw more bees. I mean, that's really what it was about. I knew that brand uh, could attract more people than calling it just theater space or off-Broadway space. Once, you know, I sometimes believe, you know, it uh, doesn't matter how you get the horse to water as long as they drink. And that was the idea there. Go, go use the big brand. I had, as an off-Broadway producer, I knew how hard it was to sell off-Broadway. Earlier, you'd mentioned focus groups, an informal focus group, of course, um, and I don't know whether you've used them in your own producing more formally, but one of one thing that's often said about focus groups is that the danger is that depending on how the group is selected, you can get a very skewed opinion, and certainly in, in, in a professionally run focus group, you have to be very careful that the person running the group doesn't skew it. Do you... Do you find that your thinking, um, even about your own projects, when they're written about in the chat rooms, they're a self-selecting group? Does that skew to the the avids, to the people who are the real diehards in theater? And does it potentially not reflect what what a broader audience might might find interesting? Yes. I mean, there, you know, chat room and focus groups, which I use and I'm a huge proponent of, not only the traditional ones, but also the, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the internet focus group now, uh, which is really just looking at raw data instead of just listening to things that can be, be um, steered by whoever is uh, leading the group. The chat rooms are difficult. It depends on which one you go to. I mean, there, I, some of them out there, the people on them I refer to as the Trekkies of Broadway. Exceptionally passionate people about this product, but you do, you know, have to take them with a grain of salt. You have to, yes, they are the people that would show up at all the conventions in their ears, but you have to. So you have to listen to them, but you have to also know that they are looking at your product a lot closer, uh, with a much more discerning eye than your average theater goer. So you have to look at the group of people that are talking about you. But ultimately, you're not even sure who those people are. That's correct. That's why you have to take all that with a grain of salt. It's the it's very easy to obsess about what happens in those rooms uh, or boards. The fact of the matter is it's usually a very, very small group of people that are doing it. And the amount of traffic or the amount of you know people affected by what they're saying is very small. It seems that a lot of this activity goes back to the statement you made earlier, which is that the strongest thing that sells theater is word of mouth. And these are all just different tools now for generating word of mouth beyond somebody at the office saying to somebody else at the office, I had a good time at my first time. 
Yeah, word of mouth, thanks to the internet, can travel much faster than ever before. It's one of the reasons why the critics are losing power. Critics used to represent I be- what I believe, and still do to some extent, sort of they fill a gap before word of mouth can sort of take effect. Because you start a show with previews, conventional wisdom says discount, et cetera, to get people in there to start the buzz. Phase two is post-opening. Your reviews hopefully give you an immediate surge of sales, fill up the next several weeks, and then your word of mouth is going to kick. We don't need the reviews as much as we use because those people that have seen it in the first few weeks are spreading their word a lot faster than they ever did before because they're doing it online, good and bad. That's the problem. Yeah, because I, I was struck coming out of regional theater, certainly in a smaller community, we could have four or five previews of a show. And if the audience liked it, the word of mouth was spreading through Hartford or Rochester, some of the places that I've been. And But in a major city like New York or presumably Chicago or Los Angeles, um, the sheer volume of people, it's, it, take, it was taking longer for word of mouth to spread. But do you think that a general audience is getting that word of mouth faster through the internet? Yeah. It's also not the, the people. It's the volume of product in the city, the choices you have. Mm-hmm. You know, at a regional theater in it, there's the word of mouth spreads and there's only one thing to do on a Saturday night or one live entertainment choice. So you make it if you hear it's good. Here, your word of mouth, the, the volume of it and the passionate uh, level of it has to be above all the other things that are already on your list. A focus group question we ask all the time is everyone keeps a list in their head of the shows they want to see. Where is X show on your list? One, two, three, four. Uh, Yeah, I do think a general audience is affected by it. It spreads a lot faster. The volume of the conversation, again, is amplified, and it can go around the world exceptionally quick. I mentioned in the introduction that you're going to be involved in Oleana on Broadway, production coming from the West Coast. But I want to ask... It's now been a couple of years since the last Born from the Mind of Ken uh-huh. Davenport production came along. What uh, what have you got in mind? What should we be looking for? What can you tell us about? Well, it, I, it has been a while and something I sort of whip myself about every day. One of the different – sorry, I didn't mean no, to no, make I you feel bad. break down in tears. Uh, no, the reason is is because unlike film, you know, with theater, you launch a show, you have to keep it running and keep it going and exi- uh, exert so much energy to do so. So I have been a little sidetracked and I've been um, sort of very disappointed with myself. But I can tell you I just started on a new uh, – one of our first get-togethers is Sunday. Uh, I have a new show that I'm developing just like I developed The Awesome Ladies Prom. I've got uh, 12 or 13 of some of the best collaborative minds I could find to create a brand new, more traditional musical this time that I'm going to write on its feet with these people. Hmm. But that's as much as you're going to tell us about it. I, I will tell you this. It's called Garage Band. Okay. That that says a lot. Yeah, it does. It That's does. right. In fact, didn't I didn't I even see a call for you know people yeah. people who played in garage bands or you know even even if it was the piccolo. That's right. It doesn't matter. Frankly, that would be very interesting. That would be funny. <laughs> I'd take a piccolo player. Uh, so I'm very excited because that is something I had an idea for. I know what I want the piece to be, but there are parts of it that I know I can't do. Frankly, and mm-hmm. these other people are going to come in and and fill those uh, gaps for me. 
and I believe I also saw that you acquired the rights to uh, the film. I don't know if there was a novel Somewhere in Time. I did. That's another project I'm working on. I have the rights to the book and the movie of, some, of Somewhere in Time, and I'm, uh, I should be announcing the full creative team, the writers, uh, in probably a couple weeks on that. So I expect that this is a big development year for that show, and I'm hoping that in 2000, late 2010, early 2011, we will see it up somewhere. I don't know if it'll be New York by then, but it'll be somewhere. Why that piece? I'm curious. What appealed to you about it? Because the film, I guess, has has some passionate devotees, but it's certainly not looked at as it, it's not as familiar a title, uh, you know, as as so ma- as so many of the adaptations we've seen are. Well, I frankly stumbled on this number of years ago before the craze of movies to musicals even started. It was uh, it took me five years to get the rights, and I've had them for about three years. So it's about way back to two thousand one or two thousand. I um, for me, I don't when I look to adapt something, I say, how can will a stage adaptation? Can we make it better, different, more interesting? I'm not just going to put a movie on stage. I'm not just going to put a book on stage. What's the theatrical element of this? And I think musicals are a heightened form of reality. And if you know this story, it's about a man who falls in love with a portrait of a woman and travels back in time to be with her. That is a heightened reality. I mean that is – he's so in love with this woman, he's going to break barriers to be with her. It felt romantic and passionate and something that sang to me. Uh, and it is just the right amount of fantasy, I think, that makes um, perfect for a musical. And in terms of the blogging and the the websites, I mean, and I've, I've probably missed a couple, I believe, that, that, that you're involved in. Do you see yourself expanding more of that presence? Yes, we, you know, I run a, a number of sites now, uh, Broadway Space. I run an off-Broadway site called bestofoffbroadway.com. I run uh, what I call the Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes of Broadway called DidHeLikeIt.com, which is a lot of fun. The he and Did He Like It is Ben Brantley, so that's a fun one to check out. Uh, we are developing those, and that's uh, that's been fun. That's sort of one thing that I do. And I have two or three other projects that hopefully you'll be hearing more about in the next couple months. I'm just uh, um, putting the ink on some paper about acquiring the rights to a major play and looking to do a revival of that, a star-driven revival. And a couple other shows as well. So we'll be we'll be doing it all. And and episode. knowing from your blog and from all your activities when you do them, we're going to hear about them. Yes, you're that very is. good at that. <laughs> that is that is something you can definitely. Uh, that's true. So with that, Ken Davenport, producer, blogger, entrepreneur, uh, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener or viewer to ATW programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the ATW website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.